everybody. This is Shannon's Lumber Industry Update, episode number 25. Thanks for listening, everybody. I've got an email bag show, but some interesting topics. Today, I'm going to talk about genuine mahogany. I'm going to talk about a forestry practice called coppicing. I'm going to talk a little bit about selecting a specific species. Going back to my episode on using technical properties to identify woods to use, we're going to dig into that on a specific example. And then finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about how to vet a supplier or more generally, how to, what what questions you should be asking some of your suppliers about where the lumber is coming from in order to set your mind at ease about the legality of the timber. It's kind of a broad reaching question, but I had a, a listener who wrote in with a very specific question that I think we can kind of translate out to the wider world. So a lot to cover. Let's jump in and get started. First of all, I do want to say thank you to all of my new uh, patrons this week. Thank you very much for sponsoring the show. It just makes things so much easier to keep the show going with the constant feedback and support I'm getting from you guys. So far, everyone seems to be loving the show. And thank you for writing in and telling me. Even just the little emails that say, great show, keep it up, really mean a lot. So thank you to everyone everybody who's taken the time to kind of encourage me as we move ahead with the show. So yeah, uh, going on in the world, it's hard to talk about anything other than the coronavirus. It is really, this is, these are historic times, folks. We are definitely um, seeing history unfold around us. And the lumber industry is being hit pretty hard. For the most part, the lumber industry is in construction, so it is considered an essential business. So most of the lumber suppliers and sawmills and things are able to be open, and that's the real distinction. Able to be open and can they be open? Certainly, employers need to look out for the health and well-being of their employees and their employees' families. So I know quite a few sawmills, I know quite a few lumber yards that while they are able to be open, they have quite a few of their employees actually working at home. So they're not really able to operate like they normally would. So yes, they can be open, but they're on a skeleton crew or even less than a skeleton crew. Moreover, a lot of customers, the the lumber company's customers, the contractors, the builders, the homeowners, the woodworkers are kind of hunkering down as well, and they're not doing any work. And a lot of orders have been canceled or just haven't initiated in the first place. So, I mean, this is, I would say, the same across any industry, especially the companies that are non-essential and have to actually shut down you know, money is being lost left and right. And even so I, I bring that up not to you know make the lumber industry seem special or anything, because there's a lot of industries that have it a lot worse. The thing is, though, being an essential business doesn't really mean anything. Um, I know of quite a few orders that are just on hold. Nobody knows when the construction is going to happen or they are on hold, even though the people can work or we can ship them the lumber, we actually can't ship it to them. You know, we can put it on a truck and we can drive it as far as the New York border, but it gets stopped at the New York border or the New Jersey border. Several states have imposed travel bans and they're not allowing shipment across uh, borders without um, you know, specific things like medical supplies and things like that. So while we may be an essential business, a lot of times our materials may not be deemed essential to cross a border. So we can't actually get it to some of our customers or some of our customers are on that skeleton crew and they don't have anybody there to receive the material. So it's, it's hard all around. Definitely every industry is being hit by this. 
the even the essential businesses like the lumber industry are struggling to stay afloat. And I've talked about this in the past about how so many sawmills have closed down because the margins are just so slim in the lumber business that, you know, a tiny little hiccup like this sends hundred year old businesses down the tubes. I just hope that we don't see that. I mean, let's face it, folks, this is going to go on for a while. You know, we are what I'm on my second week of, of working from home. Um, little side note, and I do not say this to like solicit sympathy or empathy because everybody's dealing with it and a lot of people are dealing with a lot worse than I am. But I have actually been cut back to part-time. Not only am I, I working uh, 100% from home, but I'm now working part-time because we just, we've, we've got to, we've got to cut corners wherever we can, you know? Um, so it's, it's one of those things where everybody is struggling. We're going to get through this together, no doubt, but we have to think about what's going to happen three, four weeks from now. Will we still be in this? And what's going to happen to all of those, those orders that, uh, were, were, needed to have been processed. Or as we get closer into the summer months and a lot of the vacation home construction that's going on right now gets shut down when the actual beach season opens and there is no no construction going on. Like for instance, on the Hamptons, there's no construction going on during the summer tourist season. So all of these contractors are trying to get the new decks installed, the renovations installed, all of this stuff done before really Memorial Day. And I don't know. Are we still going to be on lockdown Memorial Day? You never know. So yeah, it's it's interesting. So I say that only just to stand here in solidarity with all of you guys out there that are feeling the pinch, that are concerned about um, where this is going to take us and how the economy is going to deal with it and how the general health of your friends and family and all your loved ones are. So my heart goes out to everybody. Please stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, stay home. I'm more glad than ever that I bought a Peloton bicycle a couple of years ago because that sucker's getting a lot of workout between my treadmill and my Peloton bike. I'm still training for triathlons over here. I can't swim. I bought some stretch tubes. I'm doing dry land workouts uh, in front of my treadmill. But uh, yeah, it's, it, I guess look at it this way. The bright side to this is no other time in history have we been so prepared, maybe dare I say so used to staying home. I know I hear from so many people that just say, yeah, this is no different than my normal life. You know, we're, we're able to pretty much exist within the walls of our home without ever leaving. You know, we've got wonderful things like streaming video and streaming workout classes on stationary bicycles and, and, you know, over YouTube and things like that. We can stay active. We can stay entertained. We can play games. And in some ways it's been really heartening to see, how families have come together. It's almost like the 1950s out there. I see people walking around my neighborhood, staying, you know, socially distant from the other people walking, but neighbors saying hello that have never said hello before. Kids playing outside in in their driveway that have never done that before. Um, So I'm choosing to look at the bright side of this. And I know I'm rambling. This is a lumber podcast, but you know, you can't not talk about this. It's all anybody can talk about. It's affecting everything. It certainly has affected the lumber industry and uh, we'll get through it. So let's move on to actual lumber talk, shall we? I got some feedback from Doug about the white oak shortage in the last episode. He says, you nearly gave me a heart attack. I was relieved to find out that it was the lumber supply and not the species that was short. That was a relief. I also wondered if the current popularity of bourbon might have pinched the supply a bit. And absolutely, Doug. I actually talked about this on Wood Talk some time ago. There has been a a long time... um, 
kind of once it goes go so far as to say shortage, but pinch on the supply of red oak and white oak. And um, I also had mentioned at one point that one of the most secured jobs in America is a cooper, somebody who's making barrels, because all of these micro distilleries that have sprung up all over the place have really put a massive pinch on the oak supplies um, because everybody now needs it to make those barrels. So short answer, absolutely, that has pinched the supply. But, you know, it's all that's just adding to the demand. And as I mentioned last week, it's, you know, the supply is not there and the demand continues to, cr- to climb. It's a bit of an issue. Doug goes on to say, you may be aware of the White Oak Initiative. Uh, check it out at whiteoakinitiative.org. Uh, if you're not aware of it, it's an organization of states within the White Oak Native Range that pool ideas, resources, management tools, etc., to maintain healthy, sustainable white oaks. Um, I was not aware of that. That's very cool. I've checked it out and very, very cool. I actually forwarded this on to um, my domestic buyer as well to make sure he was aware of it and to uh, have him contribute some of these ideas and resources. Doug then says you may find episode 54 from, of From the Woods Kentucky podcast, interesting, titled White Oak Genetics. Apparently, Kentucky and other states are gathering acorns from the wild, growing them as a natural database, and recording the genetic makeup. Not only does it enable the selection of quality trees for the future, but could help a lot in finding uh, resistance to diseases as well. So keep up the good work. Looking forward to the next episode. Thank you, Doug. Very, very good stuff. And it actually lends nicely to my next story. There are, there, there is a lot of talk about how to identify trees. Certainly, as you got multiple species that are very, very similar, especially as you get into rainforests and you may have 17 different trees that actually go by the same market name or even the same local name. Um, Balata is an interesting tree in South America that, you know, it could be 16 or 20 different species and you bring a team of botanists out into the forest and even they have trouble identifying the species. So the use of mass mass spectroscopy, ah, that's a fun word to say, mass spectroscopy. Hmm. That is being used to identify the chemical makeup of trees and driving it directly back to the soil chemistry. Soil chemistry plays a major, major role in in how a tree grows, but also how the lumber actually appears. A perfect example of this is plantation teak and genuine Burmese teak. The Burmese teak, you know, renowned for its weather resistance. It's a yacht building wood because of the high amounts of silica in the wood. The plantation teak grown in India and Africa does not have the same silica content in the soil. And therefore, while in some instances it may look the same, in many instances it looks nothing alike, but in all instances, it does not have that same weather resistance, the genuine Tectona grandis, first European quality teak from Burma, or Myanmar, I should say, does have, and it's all because of the dirt that it grows in. So the D, or excuse me, the uh, spectroscopy can be used to pinpoint very closely the local, the locality of a tree, and regulation regulations regulators have realized this can be really good for enforcing. Um, bans and trafficking, illegal lumber trafficking. There's been a couple of examples where rosewoods have come into a port and they've said, oh no, that's that's legitimate rosewood because 
There are some rosewoods, Delbergia genus, that are legitimate, while there are others from like Madagascar that are absolutely verboten. And you can use this spectroscopy to actually uh, pinpoint, and this was done in a recent, well, not recent, a couple years ago case, where there was a whole shipment of, of rosewood that was seized, and all the paperwork seemed to be good, but then the spectroscopy said, no, 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 this is from Madagascar, and all Madagascar rosewood is illegal, and they seized it and, you know, prosecuted and, and convicted uh, the people that were behind that. So there's all kinds of ideas. Let's use science. Let's use forensic science and, and, and physical science to help with tree identification and, and tree origin. They're going one step further now and using DNA, a genetic makeup, not only to pinpoint the location, but to pinpoint the exact tree, the exact stump. You know, everybody's different. Every living organism is different. And now using the tree DNA, is it DNA or is it RNA? Going back to high school biology there. Someone will correct me. I'm just going to keep saying DNA, even though it might be wrong. Um, Using that, how about we just say genetic makeup? The genetic makeup can actually not only identify, you know, what is that species for our own benefit, but then also what is that species for trafficking, um, for punishing people who are, who are doing bad, the evildoers, as George W. Bush would say. Um, but what's really cool is now there are databases and, and repositories, libraries, I should say, being developed that have these genetic samples. You know, think of a library, but instead of books, just little slivers of wood that have been genotyped and tie back to not only specific species, but a specific location. And, you know, some of these libraries are 250, 350,000 samples. And now FSC has partnered with this uh, company called uh, AgroIsolab, I believe. doesn't really matter, but they partnered with them to continue to build out this library with the idea of being every single FSC forest, every single FSC um, certified provider will have samples in this library and will make it really, really easy, not only to control illegal, to, to crack down illegal lumber, but also, um, shall we say certify FSC material. I've talked a little bit about FSC in the past and how sometimes it can be smoke and mirrors. Well, if they actually have a library of genotype species and you could provide like a field testing kit to get a genotype from the lumber in your yard and tie it back to the FSC library, there's definite proof that you have FSC lumber. It's just kind of interesting. We're seeing other realms of science coming into the, into the lumber industry and, um, I don't know. It's very high tech. It's very, very cool. So I'm excited to see further developments here. All right. Let's move on an email, shall we? Greg has a very simple question, but it does not have a simple answer. Greg says, what is genuine mahogany? (laughs) It's a great question, Greg. A lot of people are confused by this. And the term mahogany, you know, it's it's got a certain luxury attached to it. You know, I have uh, many leather bound books and my study smells of rich mahogany. You know, mahogany is, is, is definitely a luxury wood. So putting mahogany in the name from a marketing perspective will make something sell more. Case in point, African mahogany, the Kaya genus in general. Now, there are some Kaya um, species that are fantastic. Um, Kaya senegalensis, Kaya ivorensis, work with them both. They are night and day different from like the Kaya anthoteca um, that I think most people have worked with when they say, I hate African mahogany. This stuff is stringy and terrible and tears out and it's not pretty. But, you know, it still says mahogany. And a lot of people buy mahogany thinking 
it's all the same. I'm going to buy mahogany because I want to build a period piece of furniture. So the term genuine mahogany has come up as of late to try to differentiate and kind of you know, separate the cream or the wheat from the chaff, if you will. Um, and what exactly does that mean? Well, these days, genuine mahogany refers specifically to Sweetina macrophylla, which is or, or Sweetina mahogany, but Sweetina mahogany, Cuban mahogany as it's otherwise known. Sweetina mahogany is a CITES Appendix 1 listed species. It is, you cannot do anything with it unless it's for scientific research. The tree is was nearly harvested to extinction. It still is out there. Um, it is actually recovering, but it was so far gone that I don't think we will see a recovery in our lifetime. So technically, Sweetina mahogany is genuine mahogany. But when we talk about genuine mahogany in the market today, we're referring to Sweetina macrophylla. Sometimes it's known as Honduran mahogany. Sometimes it's known as South American mahogany or Latin American mahogany or Central American mahogany. It is mahogany that comes from South America or Central America. It is not grown on the African continent, is not grown in Indonesia, it is not grown in Australia, although it is grown in Fiji. Very recently, well, recently, in the last 60 years or so, it began being planted in Fiji by the British during the, you know, imperialistic reign. And they discovered that it actually grows really well in Fiji. And we have imported quite a bit of Fijian mahogany where I work, and the stuff is gorgeous. It is very, very nice. Now, the the forestry and the whole lumber practice is still relatively new, so still working out some of the bugs and things in the system. But for the most part, it is some gorgeous gorgeous material. So that's the one exception. Genuine mahogany is a South American wood uh, or Caribbean wood, if you will. It is. It does have an interlock grain, but it's a very, very homogenous grain. You don't have the, the ribbon striping that you would get in African sapili, also sometimes called mahogany, African mahogany or kaya, um, or utile, which is also sometimes called utile mahogany. Um, yeah, um, let's not even get started on the Indonesians, the Philippine mahoganies, the Luans, the stuff like that, which is, you know, oh boy, it's not even close. Um, really what happens is, you know, we have genus and species, and then one level up from that in taxonomy is family. The mahogany family is in Melisei, and it's gotten to the point now where if there's any species that just is in that uh, taxonomic family, it's called mahogany. And in many instances, like the Luans, um, the Sharia genus, they are so far removed from genuine mahogany that it's not even, it's ridiculous. It's just pure marketing ploy that the name mahogany is applied to these Sharia um, species. So again, genuine mahogany is going to be something that is going to come from South America. So I think the term Honduran mahogany gets used more often than not, but it's not from Honduras, folks. Um, mahogany boards have not come out of Honduras in probably 20 to 30 years. I shouldn't say that, like one tree. It's not a, a supplier uh, of mahogany anymore. It's a, it's a supplier of mahogany of like somebody's tree fell down in their yard. That's really it. Um, a lot of stuff coming from Guatemala, a lot of stuff coming out of Belize, huge amounts coming out of Brazil, um, Peru, not so much Bolivia because they kind of thumb their nose at CITES. Um, there's good stuff in Bolivia, but yeah, it's not legal. Um, some of the, the Uruguayan stuff is okay. As you move further south, and at least on the eastern side of the South American continent, the mahogany starts to get 
less and less dense and it's really not quite the same. Technically is still Sweetina macrophylla, but when I was talking about soil chemistry before, the soil chemistry is dramatically different and it just really isn't the good quality stuff. It ends up being a much lighter, lower density thing that God forbid, is closer to some of those Sharia Philippine mahoganies. It's still better than the Sharia genus, but it's not quite the same. And you don't find that stuff actually being exported out of South America as much because the the general first world, if you will, market has recognized that the stuff is not really there. It's still being uh, harvested and it's used being used locally as genuine mahogany, but it's just not the same stuff. So genuine mahogany is incredible. If you've never worked with it, if, if you've worked with mahogany and thought, I don't understand what the fuss is about, you probably didn't work with genuine mahogany. It is a wonderful species to work with. Carves amazingly well, planes beautifully, finishes incredibly. The, the, the luster and the depth of color that you get out of genuine mahogany is just incredible. I highly recommend an oil finish on mahogany. So long answer to a relatively simple question. Genuine mahogany is definitely not from Africa or from Asia. It is from South America. And if it's not South American mahogany, you can't call it genuine mahogany. So I'm not saying necessarily avoid the African mahoganies. I love Sapili. I was just working with the other day. Great stuff, but it's a very different product. It's almost, well, not quite twice, but it's much harder. It's at least a third again harder than genuine mahogany. Utili is, is about the same. It's a little bit softer than Sapili. It's definitely both Sapili and Utili are definitely interlocked. You get that ribbon striped look. Um, Ribbon sapili is a thing, and it's more of figure than that um, interlock grain showing up like you see on the quartered face of sapili. So I can't say that there's no ribbons in genuine mahogany because the, the grain is interlocked, but um, because the grain is so homogenous, because the density and the hardness is so much lower than that of some of the harder African woods, the ribbon represents a little bit differently. It's more of like a curly maple where what you're seeing is the ingrain curling up to the surface and then diving back down. The ribbon striping you get is that interlock grain, but it's presenting it in more of a wavy pattern. So that's Juno Mahogany. Interesting, interesting wood to, uh, to talk about because it's just so popular. So people are, have been exploiting it from a heart, from a forestry perspective, but also from a marketing perspective for decades and decades. Thanks for the question, Greg. Mike wrote in and said, what about coppicing? We see quite a bit of it over here in Great Britain. How is that as far as sustainable forestry? So if you're not familiar with the term coppicing or pollarding, it's basically when you are cutting back a tree and the term in the case of coppicing, you actually cut a tree back to the stump and then you let the shoots grow out of it and let a tree grow from that same stump. Pollarding is where you actually cut the tree back, but usually you leave, you leave like what? I don't know. I think there's an exact term, but you're usually leaving like three feet of branches. So you're, you're coming back to the trunk and you're cutting down those main branches to the like three feet long. And generally pollarding is used for smaller kind of orchard type trees, fruit trees, where they don't have, you know, a huge long straight bowl. These are field trees used to produce fruit and pollarding is done specifically for fruit production or bloom production. Coppicing is taking it all the way back to the ground. Like we're cutting back the stump to the point where it's inches off the ground. 
And if you've ever done this, um, had a tree removed, but the stump not ground down, you'll see these little shoots that pop out. Not every species, but a lot of species will do this. And if you leave them alone, those little shoots will turn into trees and they will turn into trees quite rapidly because the existing root structure of that stump that you left is still there and it allows for incredible nutrients for those those saplings sprouting out of the stump. You think about if if a 60, 70, 100-year-old tree was cut down, the root structure on that, the roots generally will extend all the way out to the drip line. So if you stand under a tree and look straight up the trunk and kind of draw a circle around the maximum extent of the branches and the leaves, basically, if the, the sun were shining directly overhead of that tree, the shadow that was cast by that tree would be the drip line. The drip line, it's generally accepted that the root structure goes all the way out to the drip line because as the water and the nutrients and everything drips down from the leaves, the roots want to be right there to catch it. And extending beyond that may happen, but it, the, the most, the, the most, most fastest, the fastest way to get those nutrients back into the tree are to catch the, the water and the drips that come down from the tree. So if you've got this 60 year old tree, it's going to have a massive root structure underground. And now, it's just having to feed these little saplings. Well, those saplings will explode and grow really, really fast. And what's great about this is coppicing goes around a very strict cycle of cut down, let it grow back, and cut down. It's very much the same as normal, where you normal. Um, a silviculture where you're actually cutting down the whole tree and, and removing the stump and everything, it goes by a certain cycle. Coppicing goes by a much faster cycle, and that cycle will vary dependent upon the product that you need. So um, in Great Britain, coppicing is used a great deal for round wood. Anytime you're using the actual, the whole log, the whole round section as your product, fence posts come to mind immediately. You can use coppicing. And really what you're doing is you're letting it grow only as long as till you get uh, a tree that is like a four inch or five inch diameter. Then you cut it back to the stump, then you move on and you let it regrow again till you get that four or five inch diameter and you cut it down and you make more posts. If you're making fencing and you're using smaller pieces or you're actually growing it for lumber, that cycle may be quite a bit longer, but it's still a shorter cycle than if you actually remove the stump and rely upon the trees around it. Current silvicultural practices say if you cut down a tree, you need to have at least two feeder trees, that's with an F, feed, feeder trees within the drip line of that tree you just cut down. The idea being you just cut down that tree, you've exposed the forest to sunlight, those feeder trees are gonna grab that sunlight and they're gonna shoot up and fill the gap in the forest relatively quickly. If you take down an old growth tree with no feeder trees, that causes irreparable harm to the forest. So kind of there's always somebody there waiting to, to grow into the space that the tree you just took down uh, left. In coppicing, you're not actually taking the tree down and you're letting those feeder trees go right out of the trunk and they grow super, super fast. So it's a very cool technique. It's an incredibly sustainable technique. Why it doesn't get used more... I don't know. I imagine from a management perspective, it requires a lot more work. Usually where you see it in Great Britain, it's private landowners that are doing this coppicing on their own. Why we don't see it very much in North America, I'm not exactly sure. Um, and I think that comes down to just you know, the sheer volume of lumber that's being um, grown and, and cut down in North America. 
you know, as long as you're managing a forest with those feeder trees, do we need the, uh, the coppice? I don't know. I don't know. But if you're, if you're all curious, if you own some land and you need to cut down some trees, I would consider coppicing. I think it's a really cool method of quickly regrowing the forest. I have a tree out back that, um, was split. We had a hurricane blow through, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And it split the tree like way down low on the trunk. So I I had to actually cut the tree down. It was falling down. I cut it down and, you know, didn't really feel like bringing somebody in with a stump grinder and I left it alone. That tree. And again, I want to say this was six years ago. That tree is now 30 or 40 feet tall. Now, granted, it's a, it's a fast growing hybrid tree to begin with. It's kind of a willow type species. But the fact that it is already twice as tall as my house over the course of five years, maybe, um, is because that tree was coppiced. And it, it's a very cool technique. So anyway, I've rambled on enough about coppicing. Thanks for the question, Mike. Um, it's something that just doesn't get talked about very much. So RJ wrote in and he said, I'm starting a Dutch tool chest project soon, and I intend to use the chest to transport hand tools in a covered truck bed to classes. I'd like you to recommend some species to make the chest out of based on durability and weight. I've been going through the wood database as you recommended, comparing attributes, but I feel like I'm going around in circles. Would you mind walking me through how you would use the database information to select a relatively durable species that isn't super heavy? So here we go with a a specific example. Um, We're looking for, really the biggest thing we're looking for is a lightweight species. Um, RJ says durable. Well, the problem with that term is it's very relative. What do we mean by durable? That can mean a lot of different things. It can mean rot resistance. It can mean, you know, dent proof. And I I think in this case, he's talking about a chest that's going to be in a truck bed. It's going to move it in and out of the truck bed. Um, He wants something that's not going to get banged up and dented up. So I would use the word durable in the same way that I would use durable for like a dining room table. You know, you're going to make a dining room table. You don't want it to get scratched or dented or banged up, you know, from years and years of use. So what's kind of the quintessential, at least in North America, what's the quintessential dining room table wood? Hard maple. Somebody's probably come up, you guys listening have all shouted out like 20 different species. But in my mind, the first species that comes to mind is hard maple sometimes called rock maple. There's a reason for that. Very, very dense, very, very hard. Janko hardness close to 1,500 pounds per square inch and incredibly durable. Ash would be another one, but with the open pour, um, open grain on it, there's there's more um, filling and things that can work on. There's more splintering that can happen there. But from a durability perspective, hard maple is really, I think, should be our control species. Now, lightweight Hard maple is not lightweight. I want to say hard maple is something like 35 or 40 pounds per cubic foot. Um, Let's think about, let's try to find a control species for lightweight there. Well, let's immediately look at some softwoods. Western red cedar um, is a good example of, of a really lightweight material. It's often used in timber sizes, six by six and eight by eights for like outdoor pergolas because it's so lightweight. It's not like full-blown timber framing to raise a pergola. So, um, oh shoot. Um, stall as I pull up the wood database because now I can't remember the weight of Western Red Cedar. I want to say it's like nine pounds per cubic foot. I could be wrong. I know balsa is like nine. So if you wanted to go one end to the other, um, balsa wood would be, you know, the lightest. Um, and that's nine pounds per cubic foot. 
Uh, Western red is, okay, I was wrong, 23 pounds per cubic foot. And I think that's a really good control species. If you ever built um, a cabinet or a piece of furniture out of Western red cedar, and you're going to find similar numbers for like Northeastern white pine, um, Douglas fir is a little bit heavier, but a lot of the pine you're going to find in that 20 to 25 pounds per cubic foot. So that would be, let's just call that our control species. Um, you know, you could say balsa is a good example, but let's face it, balsa is not durable in the slightest. We're not going to get our answer from balsa. But here's the thing. Um, polonia. Polonia, in my mind, has always been the perfect example of a cabinet maker, a cabinet wood that is lightweight. And, and RJ, that would be my first, the first thing that comes to mind when you sent this email was Polonia. Um, uh, princess tree, sometimes it's known, Kiri, as it's known in Japan. The um, Kiri was used to make Tansu. Those are Japanese chess, but specifically Japanese merchant chess is what it started out as. And the merchants used to go from town to town. They were traveling salesmen in, in Japan and they built this Tansu to carry their wares. And the idea was you go to town, you sell your stuff. When you're done for the day, you take your store on your, in the form of your Tansu chest, you hoist it on your back and you hike to the next town. So these Japanese merchants wanted something that would allow a lot of storage that was going to be durable to be carted around from town to town, but it was going to be lightweight enough that you could um, not break your back in doing this. So it actually has an average dried weight of 18 pounds per cubic foot. So it's even lighter than Western red cedar. The problem is, is it's quite soft. And there's other things besides Janka hardness that can go into durability, um, shearing force, to some extent, crushing strength can tell you a little bit. But for the most part, we are talking about the Janka hardness. You know, is it going to be dented as it slides around the back of that truck? Or when you pull it out of the truck and kind of set it down hard on the concrete, are the corners going to get dented? That's really the Janka hardness test. So in the case of, of Kiri, even though it's super lightweight, the Janka hardness is only 300 pounds per square inch. You know, compare that to maple, our control species for durability at 1450 something, 1426, I think. Um, I love that. I'm just pulling these numbers out of my head. I think they're right. They're pretty close to right. Um, close enough for government work, at least. So there's a huge delta there between 300 PSI and 1450 PSI. So but man, the weight is there. And one wonders, can we augment the durability through finish? If you were to build a Dutch tool chest out of Polonia and then put like six coats of like a hardwood floor polyurethane over top of it, like go out and buy a hardwood floor poly that's like designed for houses with Rottweilers. They actually make these things. I have it on my own floor because I don't have a Rottweiler right now. But at the time, I had a, a German Shepherd and I had a Newfoundland Retriever mix, both dogs clocking in at over 150 pounds. So my Newfie was 180 at one point. So when I had the floor refinished, I went to my guy and I said, I need something specifically for dogs. And he said, I have six Rottweilers. Here's what I use. It's actually marketed as dog resistant hardwood floor finish. It's really just a high-test polyurethane. You could put a bunch of coats of that high-test polyurethane on the super lightweight polonia chest, and you would have a fair amount of durability. And honestly, I think that's your answer. I also think it's cool. Um, you know, the whole Tansu tradition using Kiri 
to make these chests. And really, he's doing the same thing. He's moving this tool chest around from class to class. I don't know how often he's moving it around, but it's the same story told 500 years later. You know, I just think that's really cool. So that would be my first guess. But as far as choosing other species, I'm going to throw it back at you, RJ, and say, here's what you do. You know that kind of the gold standard for durability in this little scenario we're looking at is hard maple. Janka hardness is going to be over 1400 pounds per square inch. So you want to start looking at species that are going to be close to that number. But then you look at it and go, well, you know, dang, uh, it's really heavy. And I actually didn't look up the exact number for hard maple. I just made a guess. Um, average dry weight, 44 pounds. So yeah, super, super hard, 14 pounds per square inch, but 44 pounds per cubic foot. So what we really want to do is try to find something that's closer to that 18 pounds for Kiri or 23 pounds, 25 pounds for a lot of the pines and start looking at the variety of species. And and really what I always do is I I start looking, I mean, you can look at all kinds of species that there's no way you could ever find it. You know, you just, you're not going to find this random weird species you've never heard of before. It's a local lumberyard. So you might as well just go ahead and discount it. But are you going to paint the chest? So appearance may not matter. Um, are you going to leave it natural? Maybe appearance goes a lot there. So I would start with the appearance and whether or not I need a pleasing grain um, because of a clear cut finish or whether or not I don't care. And if you don't care, then, then maybe we start looking at something like Douglas fir. Douglas fir is 32 pounds per cubic foot. So, you know, it's what little, almost 10 pounds heavier than Western red cedar. It's uh, about twice as heavy as Kiri, but from a hardness perspective, it's twice as hard as Kiri at 620 pounds per square inch. Now that's quite a bit less than hard maple. And let's face it, you're not going to find something as hard as hard maple. That's going to be lighter than maybe 38 or 40 pounds. So I think weight really trumps durability in this particular instance because of what I talked about early with the polyurethane. So RJ, if I was going to recommend a species for you, first, it would be Kiri. Second, it would be Douglas fir. Um, Maybe spruce. I'm going to look up spruce right now. Norwegian spruce is pretty common. Yeah, see, no, spruce is just too soft. Um, Well, again, it's, it's 25 pounds per cubic foot in weight, but it's 380 pounds per square inch Janka. So it's a little bit harder than the Kiri. It's, you know, half as soft as, as the um, Douglas fir, but almost 10 pounds lighter than Douglas fir. I still think Douglas fir is going to treat you better if you're going to paint it, even if you're not going to paint it, you know, it's still quite attractive. If I were to use Kiri or Polonia, I wouldn't paint it. I would go with a natural look. You could even dye it, I suppose, and get some different looks there. But uh, yeah, just apply a good polyurethane on it. But you see where I'm going here. What I'm trying to find is a control species. Find here's a species I know to be durable. Hard maple is great for dining room tables. Here's a species I know to be super lightweight, you know, because I picked up a piece of Western red cedar. You look at those numbers and you just start looking at other species and you kind of gauge in between. So the the specs that I'm specifically looking at here are Janka hardness for durability and average dried weight for the overall weight of the case itself. Now, the last thing I'll say when it comes to weight is your construction method itself can contribute a lot to this. 
don't have a lot of excess material inside the case. Now, Dutch tool chest is, is pretty sparse to begin with, but say you were building a chest of drawers. Would I use solid dividers between the drawers? Heck no, I would use dust frames. Um, and that's why dust frames came into being because they cut down on the weight of the chest a lot. If you used frame and panel over solid sides and use like a quarter inch plywood panel, you're going to cut down on the weight substantially. The drawers themselves, instead of making half inch thick drawers, make them three eighths of an inch thick. Um, you cut back on the weight substantially by altering your construction method. That's the other way to do it. So yeah, lots going on there, but a great example, RJ. Thank you for, for writing in with that because you know th this is all esoteric and all in theory until you actually start looking for specific elements. And that's what I talked about in that episode. You want to find a wood to work with. You need to figure out what's important to you. And in this case, what's important to RJ is the weight and the durability. Those two technical specifications can really help you narrow in on what you're going for. So finally, the last question that I have here is from Brad. And um, I won't read his whole email. Um, well, I won't read the email that he's referring to, but let's just say Brad uh, sells lumber. Um, he is actually the owner of a business called The Naughty Log. And he was contacted by a supplier out of country saying, we want you to be a distributor of ours. We specialize in wood slabs and we've got a whole bunch of slabs. And they wrote this big, long email talking about their process, talking about the size of their uh, facility. They even invited him to come to the facility. Although Brad, I have to laugh when I noticed that they didn't invite to pay your way to come to see the facility. Sure. If you want to, you know, you want to pay my way, I'll come see your facility. But I get these emails all the time. Um, we have several million board feet of teak. We have several million board feet of this species or that species, or we specialize in this, and we want you to be one of our distributors. This happens a lot. In many instances, it's a company who's trying to get a foothold in North America. And in most instances, they don't really know anything about import export regulations in the lumber industry. They don't know anything about CITES. They don't know anything about Lacey. What they're looking for is a North American company who does, who can kind of guide them through. So if they can tease that company by their material, and a lot of times the material is going to be nice. The material may be very legitimate, but what they're looking for you to do is to help them get all the documentation they need. So you can quickly vet something like this. And for those of us that, that aren't being contacted by a distributor who are just curious if I can buy this material. I, um, Brad basically said, how can I vet this? How can I determine if this is even worth my time? So what I said is, you know, first of all, you have to weigh whether or not you respond. If you respond, you're kind of opening the door for a bunch more emails. If you're not really interested, I just wouldn't even respond. But if you are interested, then send them an email and, and, and start a dialogue. And a lot of people get overwhelmed with what questions do I ask to make sure that this is legal? What questions do I ask to make sure that what they're selling me is legitimate? And you start thinking of all these different things that you don't know, and that's when you get overwhelmed. So the real answer here is just start basic. Just start a conversation. In this case, they're, they're pushing slabs. So ask them, where do the slabs come from? Just let's start talking about it. Where did you get them? What kind of chain of custody documentation do you have from the suppliers? And is it possible that you can trace each slab back to a particular land concession or a stump? Now, the answers to these may be, I don't know. Some of them may be no. But if, if they don't know, then you can turn around and say, I really would like to know that. you know, And then they can go and look for that. Um, the other thing is, do you stock any species that are CITES listed? 
And if they don't know that, there's a red flag. Um, Well, maybe not a red flag, but definitely, well, tell you what, you go look and you get back to me, you know, let them do the homework there. But here's again, another example of a company that just doesn't know, and they're looking for somebody who does know to guide them through it. So do you have any species that are CITES listed? If so, do you actually have the CITES license, the CITES passport to export that species. Um, the particular company that contacted Brad mentioned Spanish cedar. So the first thing to pop on my mind is, do you have a Spanish cedar CITES export license? You have to have a license per species to do this. So if they, you know, if they say, oh yes, we do have some CITES listed species, we have 10 of them. They have to have 10 export licenses. They also actually have to have a master CITES export license, but that kind of comes when they get the first license. So that's the other question you ask. Do you have your export license for that species? Because if not, we can't even talk. And if not, there's a big red flag. How did you get the lumber in the first place? If you don't have an export license, you already have the lumber. Who did you get it from? That's kind of a problem. The other thing is, what form do you get the lumber? You know, you you're selling slabs here. Do you get them in log form and you're sawing them into slabs? Are they already sawn into slabs? What 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 do they look like when you get the material? What does it look like? And that will tell you a lot. If they're just buying logs, they're doing a fair amount of work, but they're also going to be buying directly from a concession, and they should know at that point where this material is coming from. If they're buying boards, there's a lot that can happen from forest to log to board, and you really want to make sure that they've got some chain of custody documentation, and it's not going to be just one piece of paper, um, but they should have a chain of documents that show where that came from. So knowing what form the lumber is in when they actually purchase it is going to help a lot. Um, certainly you want to know if it's dried. In this particular instance, the person that, that emailed Brad made a point to say that it was kiln dried. But what work do you do to the wood? Like before, when you receive it and before you actually sell it and ship it, what are you doing to it? Are you drying it? Are you sawing it? Are you straight line ripping it? Are you doing some other work? Because that percentage of transformation may play heavily into the Lacey Act compliance. It will depend upon where it's coming from. You know, if it's coming from from Panama, they're going to have different local legislation, local laws that say a certain amount of transformation needs to happen in order for it to be U.S. Lacey compliant. So you need to know what are you doing. So if you are going to the local lumber yard and you're looking at a stack of genuine mahogany, genuine mahogany is a CITES listed species. Where did you get it from, Mr. Lumber Dealer? You know, who did you buy it from? Well, I bought it from the J. Gibson McElvain Company. Okay. Well, the, the conversation's over at that point, um, at least with that lumber supplier, because they bought it legally from a company who was already here in the United States. So the your local lumber supplier didn't have to have any documentation, didn't have to supply anything, unless, of course, it's FSC mahogany. And that's a different story. There does have to be paperwork for the FSC. But just genuine mahogany... J. Gibson McElvain, that's who I work for, we imported it legally. We certify to our customers that what we're doing is legal. And technically, it's already in the country. They bought it from us from our lumber yard in Maryland. They don't need any other documentation. We, however, bought it from someone abroad. We were the importer of record. We brought it into the country. We have to have a lot of documentation. We have to have the CITES import license for Sweet Tina Macrophila, Genuine Mahogany. So if you really wanted to drive back up the chain, then when you contact your supplier supplier and find out how they got it, um, 
So you can see how this question, these series of questions will really help anybody, whether you're trying to vet a potential supplier to resell material, or you're trying to vet a supplier for material that you plan to use yourself. It all comes down to just starting this dialogue, starting this conversation about where the material come from. And I've said this in the past, don't grill them. Don't be like, where did you get it? Like, you know, guilty before proven innocent. That's why I say start a dialogue, have a conversation. As a concerned consumer, literally consumer of wood, I not not only buy it, but I consume it and make it into stuff. I'm curious, where did it come from? Who did you buy it from? What form did it come in? You know, if the place you're buying from has a sawmill and actually saws their own boards, are they buying logs? Are they buying boards? And if they're buying exotic logs, how did they get them? because there are log export bans in many, many countries. Now, there are ways to do this legally, but you know these are things that you need to ask and just start having that conversation. So Brad, I hope that helps. Um, and you know, if you do follow up with this guy, I mean, you're, you're welcome to email me and I can talk about it on the show. Um, or I'd just be curious personally, if you just want to email and let me know kind of what comes of it. I don't have to talk about it on the show, um, but uh, you know it's kind of an interesting topic, and I think that uh, there's a lot of people out there who can relate to this, who are very concerned about, you know, the origin of the material they're buying, and this this can help a lot. So that about wraps it up for me this week, folks. A lot of different topics, but I think some good conversation. Heck, I've been rambling on for almost an hour here. So if you have questions about anything in the lumber industry. Let me know. You can go to lumberupdate.com. There is a, a, a page there where you can submit questions, or you can record a voice memo on your phone and send me a voicemail. You can send that to lumberupdate at gmail.com. Love your questions, guys. Keep them coming. They are um, they just keep such variety in the show and they keep me on my toes because I knew about coppicing but I had to do a little bit of research to answer that question. So thanks as always, guys. Uh, Your questions make the show better and they make me smarter too. So go buy some lumber, everybody.